This episode is going to be so good. Kirk Wayman is a, an executive coach in Redding, California. He's helped tons of my friends, people in the, uh, you know, the acting industry, entrepreneurs, business owners all over the nation. You're going to love it. He's going to share tons of tactics and tips on how to not only become great in your trade, but also to have a ton of purpose and to be just be excited to get up in the morning, even when things are hard. Uh, so you're going to love this episode. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and comment. But without further ado, this is Kirk Wayman. Hey, it's Chris Lamb. This is the Money Hole Podcast. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and leave a comment. Today, I'm so excited. I've got my good friend here, Kirk Wayman. Thanks for being here, bro. You bet, Chris. It's been a long time. We haven't had a chance to connect yet. I know, and I, this is a great place to do it, right? And live in front of everybody. Yes. <laughs> it's actually been the way I've done it with a lot of people. Like, man, I'd love to hear your story. Would you mind just doing it on a podcast? We keep talking about getting coffee. and Yeah. Um, but thanks for being here, man. So um, just for everyone that, that's watching this, what what do you do right now? Like, wh what would you call the type of coaching you do? Well, we often refer to it as an executive coach, yeah, um, and it's really focused on uh, business leaders. And that can be anybody who's starting, building, or scaling a business. And we want to help them do that in a way that will get them to the spot where they can really thrive, both their business and them as a leader inside of it. That's cool. I, before I ever met you on a on a personal and professional level, I heard about you for years. Hmm. I had so many clients and friends who told me how much you helped them in their business. And now that you're creating content too, and we'll definitely put your stuff on, on the, uh, on the podcast, I've seen a lot of your clips and I'm, I've really excited to chat with you today. Um, so this is the money hole podcast. And the, the, basically what we try to talk about is people's belief systems around money and what it means to have it all or being whole, mm -hmm. um, you know, having a great marriage, having, you know, liking who you are, getting paid well, managing your money. And and obviously you've seen this, that people run to extremes in all these areas yeah. and it creates a lot of problems in their life. So one of the questions I, I like to ask people is what your belief systems around money were at a young age, if you know. So I was raised in a family that was middle-class by every stretch of the imagination. And we we're a pretty good sized family. So we had a lot of needs and on pulling on us. And so we lived in this very thrifty way. Um, there was always enough, but there wasn't extra mm -hmm. and we got used to how to live and be happy in that ecosystem. But that was my normal. And so I had no other frame of reference. And then my dad was able to teach us how to save, how to, um, how to, how to make just having enough work. And what's amazing to me is over the course of his life, he's totally made it work. Hmm. He and my mom have had a great retirement. They're they just did really well with what might appear to have been kind of not enough at times. Yeah. It did create a mentality of how to make life work in that framework. Yep. And I had no real experience for the kind of life I was going to live because I've gone after a whole lot more. So they, so what they may not have had a lot, but they, you saw them model stewardship. Absolutely. And managing what they had yep. really well. Yep. Things like, um, like one of the great attributes of people who 
do this is they are very good at fixing things themselves. Yep. The DIY, right? Oh yeah. And it's, it's fantastic. And I can remember a few years ago, my brother and I have, we are out doing professional work and we're working all the time and I don't have time to fix things anymore, but I still feel obligated to, cause it's what, well, it's what we do. Yep. And he and I were dialoguing about that and how at this point, when we go to try to fix something, we don't do it all day, all the time. We're not in that world anymore. Mm-hmm. And we actually make it worse now. <laughs> yes. But we still have this, right? Yeah. But there's still kind of this moral obligation that that's the right thing to do. Yep. And then I find this bleeding into how I run my business. And I work with this with a lot of clients where we're doing DIY stuff inside of our businesses as well. We're yep. building our own websites, doing our own books, doing everything ourselves. It's not how to make money. No. No, I think that's a big lesson we all have to learn is, you know, how to stay in our lane. Yeah. I remember when I, you reminded me, I remember when I hired my first landscaper, <laughs> Yeah, that felt so irresponsible. Uh-huh. It felt so wrong, morally wrong, maybe yep. even. Yep. Like, how could I do that? None of my friends have that. Who do I think I am? And mm-hmm. it's so weird looking back on that, that that was such a big decision for me, but it was really rooted in a lot of the belief systems I got, you know, that's growing right. up. Yep. So uh, we've gone through, well, when I'm working with, um, especially moms that are running their own businesses, they have, they cross these thresholds in profound ways. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, housekeepers and childcare, and it's even more rooted in those roles, I think. Yeah, it is. Um, and it's just quite a thing to, is this even okay? Yeah. And I think largely what we're dealing with is not a moral structure. It's just a familiar, unfamiliar. Yeah. I was totally unfamiliar with hiring people to come out to my house and fix things mm-hmm. and I'll pay them. I'll be happy to pay them because when I go to work, I can make that money faster, better. And the key is I'm better at what I do at work than I am at fixing my plumbing. It's true. I'm just better at yep. that. I've devoted myself to it. And so I'd rather pay a plumber to do that so I can go do what I'm truly great at. Yeah. I've always, I've always told my wife, there will come a day when I do the lawns again, <laughs> but it will be the day that I want to do the lawns. Yes. Yeah. You know, and that's not anytime soon, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So for, for me, I was just thinking about this this morning. We made a decision about maybe three months ago to hire a someone to work full time to help us with the kids. Okay. And I had this weird belief system for a long time that, uh, that I thought, I just didn't think anyone should do that. I didn't right. think it was a good idea. And now I'm eating my words, you know, just like anything where I judge someone else. I usually end up doing the exact thing that I judge someone for. And, you know, I was thinking about it this morning, like we don't have payments on things. I mean, for us, I mean, we could probably have better cars, a bigger house and a lot of other things, but to have the quality of life we want to allow my wife to be able to get out of the house a couple times a week to make sure that we have someone there with the kids who we love and trust and who can help do homework that I don't know how to do anymore. I mean, it's a really good investment, mm-hmm. you know? So, so that was something I had to work through. So at what point for you, did you, you know, you're thinking about money change where, cause obviously the way you grew up is not how you're living now. Right. So right. how did that, how did you get to where you're at today? So in grad school, I read a book by a black woman whose name is Bell Hooks. And she, she grew up very, very poor. And over the course of her life, navigated from very poor through academics into being uh, very wealthy now. Yeah. She's a voice of the nation. She's a social critic. And she got to see her life from being a very poor all the way up to being very wealthy and moving through multiple classes. So she lived through poor middle, uh, sorry, lower class, middle class, and upper class, mm-hmm. and then wrote on classes in our culture. Wow. And I never 
And one of the points she makes is, in our culture, we see all the isms. We see racism and sexism and all these different things, but we don't see here in America classism. We don't see our classes because we have this pulled up by your bootstraps, anyone can make it Mm -hmm. narrative, which is not precisely true. Right. It's a story we tell and it has value, but she broke down these classes and was able to show how they function, how they work. And I could see myself that I was still living as though I was part of the middle class. And I am, I mean, I'm not fabulously wealthy, but I was still stuck in these mindsets Mm -hmm. and I couldn't see how the upper class lived, what happens when you start making decent money, Mm -hmm. um, the shifts you need to make. I couldn't, I didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I judged it. I didn't feel comfortable around some of the people who'd become my peers. And when I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. And then I started to pay attention to it. And then I started to practice it. And now I can navigate those those divides um, more seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that did it for me is I was, at the time I was working for a nonprofit and I was down at a big, huge bank, the San Francisco Federal, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, big, huge bank down there. And I was there as a nonprofit grant writer. But for this event, I wore a really, really nice suit with really, really expensive shoes and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And I wore the wrong uniform, right? All the nonprofit people are supposed to be wearing Patagonia. Ah. All the bankers wear suits. And I was out of uniform. And so this guy in the back comes up to me and he just looks at me and goes, who are you? Because I was was on the wrong side of the table. And he was a big investor looking for big projects to invest in. And I was wearing his uniform. Wow. And so he approached me, created this whole opportunity just because of how I presented myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I was like, holy smoke. Then I started to notice that how you dress cues different kinds of conversations with the exact same people. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, so this is in some ways a game you can play, but it also reveals the way that we treat each other, the way we navigate different code books and code systems. Yep. Um, Why does a Montbach pen have a little tiny M on the, the little thing when you put it in your pocket? Yep. It's because it's a brand that says, I'm the kind of guy that has a Montblanc pen. Yeah. That's it. It's yep. just a pen. Nah, it's code. Um, and so I started to really pay attention to how these tools work in mm-hmm. our culture, which then allowed me to begin to evaluate how I wanted to play with them and if I even did. Yep. Um, and that really allowed me to let go of some things, hold on to some things from my history, grow in some new areas, think differently. Yeah. Did you want to, like you you say you wanted to hold on to some things and you wanted to let go of some things. Yeah. I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit. So some of my, um, some of my journey, well, you could tell my whole story <laughs> about my journey of life around one river, the mouth of the Klamath river to me and our family is the center of the universe. And it's where we went camping all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and when I left Humboldt County, uh, which is where it's, well, it's actually up north, but anyway, it's over on the coast. When I left, I left to be go, go become someone different. I needed to leave my home and go on a journey and figure out who I was. Mm-hmm. And that place was super important to me, but it was the, the, it encapsulates my origin story and all those memories. And so when I went out and did my own thing in the world, I never went back. I never went back subconsciously. But one day I was driving down the coast and I stood and I saw it. This is about five or six years ago. And it shocked me that it was still there because to me it become, it was gone. Yep. 
Well, I started going back, and that place is now, I've re-engaged it. We go back every year. We do some of the same things. It is part of my history that I do not ever want to let go of, but I had to come back as my own person, and that took about 15 years. And it was weird how my subconscious allowed me to go on that journey, and it just wiped it. It was gone. And so there's a way in which I've been able to come back to my home, Mm -hmm. um, re-engage a whole bunch of stuff about what it was to be me, but somehow I'm different and somehow I'm the same. Yeah. You're probably more authentically yourself now than you ever were before. I think so. Yeah. I'm certainly a bigger version of myself, but there's still a kid in me that just wants to go play on that beach. Which is great. Yeah. Which is beautiful. Yeah. When I grew up, we grew up lower middle class and single parent household. And I've shared this before, but, you know, knock off shoes, getting made fun of by kids. So for me, my equation for money at an early age was money equals happiness. Right. And I started working at 14 and, you know, always worked because I wanted to make money. And and then once I went through, made a lot of poor choices in life and it didn't end up going so well, mm-hmm. I ended up in the church. And at the time, the church that I was a part of, they had this culture that in order to follow God, you had to sell everything you had. Yep. And you money, it, you can't have money and serve God at the same time. Yeah. And whether I wanted to or not, like I, I had a, a major conflict because on one hand, I had these giftings that I saw the fruit of, but on another hand, this community was changing my life. It wasn't all bad. It was mostly good, right? But like any culture, there's always, there's always some dark sides to mm-hmm. it. And so this conflict was really difficult for me. And I remember I went to a conference that was a non-church conference. It was actually a Tony Robbins Unleashed the Power Within I walked on hot it's coals. It's just a different church. It's a different, you know, there's so much truth to that. Yeah. We can go back to that because he's like a incredible believer right now. That's probably going to be single-handedly one of the most important people in the child trafficking movement Oh, I didn't with know this that. new movie coming out. Yeah. You got to check it out. Okay. The Sound of Freedom. But anyway, so I ended up going to this conference and he said to me, or he said to us, it wasn't Tony talking directly to me. He said, you know, the, there's belief, belief systems we have. And I know you coach a lot on that because I've heard it on your podcast. He said, usually the belief system you have is the thing that's dominating your life. And the, the antithesis of that belief system is probably closer to the truth. Mm-hmm. And that, so I was like, man, what are they? I mean, most of the time we don't even know what they are. Mm-hmm. And But I, I ended up finding a couple of them. And, and one of them was, I cannot serve God and have money. Right. And I was like, man, I really wrestling. That's not precisely taught, but it it, it it's in the ecosystem yeah. over and over and over. It really is for mm-hmm. so many groups, mm-hmm. um, especially in a lot of churches, you know. So I I ended up, well, what would be the opposite of that? And I was like, I don't know how to. And so what came to me was I would learn to serve God in ways I never would ever if I didn't have money. Stewarding. So in other words... The process of learning to steward wealth would teach me how to trust God in ways that I wouldn't any other way. Okay. And, you know, hindsight, looking back now, I'm going to tell you that that was absolutely the truth. Uh Like when you start going into the world of of finance, like it it, it will make you or break you. Uh It really reveals what's inside of somebody. Uh I heard someone say one time, adversity and prosperity will always reveal the true character of a man. Uh And so I think that fear keeps so many people. 
Yeah, from, keeps us in the middle. We does. don't want either. This is safe. Yeah, life is lived between the tension of chaos and order. Totally. Between the known and the unknown. It's, it's, we, and yeah. And so many people stay there and it's, he's like, you got to take some chances. You got to move. You, you got to go. Yeah. There's a, um, Mm. So many, it's a com. One of the common themes that we coach to is the person that has gone after money. Money makes you happy, mm-hmm. and and it's making money is doable. And so they go out and they have a number in their mind or an idea in their mm-hmm. mind, and then they exceed it, and they just make a, we'll call it a ton of money. Yep. And then they're like, but it didn't fix the problem. No. Nope. Right. We like to say the only thing worse in life than not getting what you want is getting it. Yeah. Because that shatters the illusion that it was going to make you happy. Yeah. Um. Happy is one of those words that's, we talk a lot about that because it's one of those words that people think is the goal. They think it's an external journey that they're going on that will have some kind of internal meaning for them. And it's not. Happy doesn't work that way. And what's true is that money to a point does buy something close to happiness. To a point, there's a certain amount of money and you cross that threshold. It's not near as much as people think. But when you look at it, what we really think is, ha- is happening there is it's not buying happiness. It's buying the reduction of misery. And reducing misery is probably a really great idea. Yeah, and it it also buys you options, right? It buys you options. And, and options can be a really good thing. I mean, so many people- but there's a burden involved. There is a burden involved, uh-huh. yeah. And, and I think for a lot of people, they, you know, 80% of the country lives paycheck to paycheck right now. Uh-huh. And I believe- that every single human has a unique gift and quality right. and they were made to do something great. Right. And, but the problem is a lot of people never get the chance to live out those dreams because they're, they're held down by their financial situation. Like they, they have to, or they, they think that they are. And, and so that, that is the one thing that I think will helps a lot of people is when they get financially free, they, they live below their means like your parents mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. And they have extra, they, they save money. You have the ability to start a business. Right. You can take some chances that other people can't because you sacrificed a little bit of your time. You had, you know, some delayed gratification for a season yep. so that you could do something better. Mm-hmm. There's a, um, the financial freedom as a concept is one of those terms that I think we need to clearly define in our culture and our conversations. Um, because what I think people hear is, is a means to an end thinking. Mm -hmm. If I can make enough money, then I'll be free to quote, do whatever I want. But if you're not doing what you want in the process of making that money, there's a problem with that. There is. Right? Totally. Just by itself. That is a problem. The second problem is the amount of money you need to make to be able to do, to do whatever you want is somewhat under, if that's undefined, then it's just more mm-hmm. and it becomes a tyranny of more. And then the third problem with it is freedom is not found fully in the freedom of choosing, which is what a lot of us think. We think if I make enough money, I can then choose whatever I want. And that truly is half of freedom. Yeah. But the other half is the choosing the making of the choice. And that locks you into a new jail, so to speak. Because mm-hmm. once you make the choice, you've said no to a thousand things. Yep. And if you make a powerful choice, you've probably said no for a long time to most things in order to build out what you want. And so if you make enough money to be able to start your own business and then choose to start a business, that is quite a burden. And you will no longer have the freedom of choice. You'll have the freedom of having chosen. Yeah. And what that feels like when you choose well is meaning and purpose or meaning in life. And money 
isn't necessary to find meaning, although it can amplify it. Mm-hmm. It can totally help. But it's it's this problem of moving from, if I can just get there, I'll be free. It's like, no, no. If I can get there and then make a powerful choice, I'll be free. And often, that is a choice you could have made today. That's really good. I, I agree with that. I've always... I haven't loved the word financial freedom. I think financial independence is probably a better word. What does that mean? Well, so for me today, what that means is that you have the ability to choose more because you don't have the constraints Uh, of a lack of money as a resource. But there's always a lack of money because there's always more things you could do. Okay. So, so let's, let's say, let's say that someone's life expenses are, $7,000 $7,000 a month. Right. They've got a $2,500 mortgage, two car payments, and they like to They're shop. They like to shop at Sprouts. Right. And go on two great vacations a year. Right. right? They're in trouble. So then let's just, let's say that over a 10 year period, they, they buy some rentals, they invest wisely. Right. And they have passive income now of 7000 a month. And let's just assume that this person had purpose, was, was happy in their life, but they, they did have desire to take more risk and to do things right. that they weren't prepared to do, maybe not even just with money, but they they were educating themselves along the way. Mm-hmm. And at some point, an opportunity came to them mm-hmm. and they were able to change their entire career. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's starting a business, becoming a partner of a company. Had they not d- made the decisions with money t- to where they have enough money coming in outside of their their current occupation, there would, there would be, there'd be less ways to do that. Right. I, that, that math makes perfect sense to okay. me and that's right. And a lot of people need to hear that, that narrative, that idea because yeah. of how they're thinking about money. But I would suggest to you that there's something much deeper going on, which I think you would probably agree with. I'd love to hear it Because though. I would suggest that money doesn't even exist. And so the key to all of that story couldn't possibly be something around money because money doesn't exist. And we know that because you can't find it anywhere in the world. Where, what is it? Hmm. And when you dig into money, what you find is money is, is just trust at its core. It's just, we trust that this thing that we say is money has value. Um, it's like, it's like the inch money doesn't exist in the same way. An inch doesn't exist. Can you go find an inch in the world? And the answer is no. So when you answer the question why about something or when you start to talk about the things that drive human behavior, it's not this thing we call money. It's everything under it. Yeah. So if I was to ask you, why does this couch exist? If you said 60 inches, that'd be silly. It's for sitting on. It's for gathering around. It, yeah. it has all kinds of purposes and meaning. But 60 inches isn't the answer. Right. Right. Yep. So the reason we're doing all this, what's going on inside of that story you just told had something to do with the person's capacity to create value. Yeah. And money measures value. Yep. Now, if your values or the things you value are out of alignment with reality, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. So if you make $7,000 a month and you're trying to spend 14, you're trying to live as though gravity doesn't exist and you're going to, you're going to go splat. Right which is right. true, but all the money's doing in that equation is measuring that your values are out of alignment. Yep. Something's off. Yep. When you're trying to do work in order to make money, what you want to do is do work that creates maximum value. Yes. And the way I would describe that is showing up as the best version of yourself for the benefit of, of others. Mm-hmm. If measured in cash, we just call that a business. 
that's the key to, I think, thinking this thing through is being able to go, I don't want financial freedom. What I want is meaning and purpose in life. Mm-hmm. If if I can get more of that, um, no, if I say it differently, if if I can do work that matters for people who care, that will often produce cash. It usually does. And Right. Yeah. And the cash is the way of people saying thank you, basically. Yeah. And then you can turn that even a little further and say, if I'm going to show up doing something that I can do that creates extraordinary value for others, the better I do at that, the more likely they are to pay me sufficiently mm-hmm. that they make sure I never do anything else. Yep. Right? Yeah. There's a way in which we, I'm going to use the word, trap people into their professions by paying them as much as possible. So like imagine Bill Gates waking up one morning and saying, I wonder if I'd be a good oil painter. And we as a society said, please never have that thought because he created so much value just with Excel, trillions and trillions and mm-hmm. trillions of dollars of value just by creating Excel and the company that could support it. That we gave him a few billion, mm-hmm. right? He, we used him to create a tool that we value greatly. Greatly. And we shared some of that with him. Mm-hmm. That's a weird way to think about it, but that's the measuring of value. So I don't think that money produces freedom. I think showing up as the best version of yourself and then doing that in ways that benefits others produces and making that choice over and over and over produces the world in which we build meaning. And when we're doing that in this economy, the thank you is often money. Yeah. And I I see that with, you know, you talk to people all the time who complain Mm -hmm. about their job. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And and I think this is very tied to what you're saying. Um, they desire to get paid more, to work in a better environment. Um, and then you'll meet someone. I met someone at the Braveco conference not long ago. And there was a group of these Samoan guys. And they were awesome. And I'm, I'm Hawaiian, so we were having a great conversation. And I asked them all what they do for a living. And sometimes I feel weird even asking that question. But I wanted to know because these guys, there's these big burly dudes. And I think one of them was a professional ball player. And I get through and the last guy says, right now I'm delivering pizza. And the way that he said it hmm. was with so much pride. And he was like, I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out, you know, what I really want to do. And mm-hmm. right now I'm, I'm delivering pizza. And he, he said it unashamedly. And I, I remember thinking to myself, I was like, good for you. Right. Good for you. Because one of the things that we talk about all the time in the co- the coaching group I'm a part of and with people that come to me that are younger, I always tell them, I was like, hey, get that pizza job and work it and do the best you can and enjoy the people around you. We all have to do something like that. Like, But f- I think what I hear you saying is like figuring it out as early as you can, that it's about adding value right. every single day to everyone you can. Right. If if that is your purpose in life, you're going to be free regardless of how much money you have, but it's likely that money will follow. The byproducts of that are often, yeah. yeah. It's it's about learn and then the com- the component of that a lot well, I'll say it this way. A lot of people when they're young are trying to figure out what they're passionate about. You know, you're 24 years old and you're trying to find your passion, then do your passion. It annoys me so much here. It's like you can't you you don't know what you're passionate I, I, about. That annoys Please me. Please stop. This, Right. But if you continually work at showing up as you, if you figure out who you are and how you create value, and like you said earlier, there are ways that every human has that does create value. Um, They don't all pay the same. 
Mm-hmm. That's got to be okay. Yep. But when you find that, every time you get a glimpse of that, every time a job you have that helps you introduce yourself to that process, and it we call it the value creation mechanism. What is that? And if you can start to name it and understand it and see it, then you can start to become a master of it. Mm-hmm. And that's where this idea of passion comes from, is figuring out yourself over decades sometimes, yeah. and then becoming a master of delivering it. Um, we, we th- I think of this as finding your potency. And potency has a concept that includes uh, subtraction. Mm-hmm. To get to potency, things are being taken away. There's a lack going on. There's a scarcity. There's a giving up. There's a letting go. That's not me. That's not me. I'm not good. At, I'm only good at that. I'm not great at that. Mm-hmm. And you're consistently lack, recognizing your lack. At the same time, you're finding the one or two things, maybe four or five, that you're absolutely have an abundance. Mm-hmm. You have tons of. It's so natural for you. It's not expensive. But if you're not going after something, it's going to take you a lot longer to figure that out. That's right. If the you ever sooner do. sooner you start, the better. Yep. And I don't think you ever get done. No, I don't think. Right? You just, yeah. But you just keep, keep following. Journey. You just keep following the, the mm-hmm. fruit and the signs. Okay, so that I, I agree with everything you just said, because, you know, one of the things that I like Dave Ramsey a lot, but one of the things about his program that I I feel could be better, and I'm saying this nicely, <laughs> is he seems to deal with a lot of behavior. He does. And what I've learned in 22 years of thousands of clients buying homes and seeing everything over years and years and seeing how it affects their life is that behind people's behavior, there's always there's always brokenness. There's always belief systems and there's, you can fix the behavior for a season, but I know of multiple people who went through Dave Ramsey's program and got debt free and they're back in debt. Right. Because they didn't get to the root. Right. So for, for me, when I think about, and and part of it was why we called this money hole is like, you can't just deal with money. Right. If you're trying to become somebody who, genuinely likes who you are, you love yourself mm-hmm. and you feel like you have a purpose and, um, and, and you're going to have to have great friendships. You're going to have to have work on your marriage. You're going to have to work on being a good parent. You're going to have to work on rest, nutrition, your body. Like it is a holistic approach. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. The, <laughs> you laid a lot out there. Uh, I find, I also find Dame Ramsey to be annoying. I'll go further. <laughs> uh, I'm like, it, this stuff know, worked in the fifties. Okay. Let's be fair. There's nothing wrong with his principles, but it's, it's the same critique. Yeah. Um, and I work with a lot of uh, people who are trying to run businesses on, on Dave Ramsey principles. And I'm like, we, we want to have a whole different view of debt. Yeah. Right. We want to have a whole different view of, inv- uh, so, um, and yet I do know it does work for some people and that's fine. Um, the idea of a balanced life is a tricky one. Yeah. It um, is. It's the notion of balance to me is one of, it's a specific metaphor. There's a sense of a teeter-totter and keeping things in balance, which isn't really what I think people mean when they say this, but it is the metaphor. But it causes, I think, a breakdown where I have to have some sort of equal capacity or equal focus on all these different things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's seasonal in times of life. Um so I tend to shy away from the idea of balance, although so do I. it can be held in a way that I think is really valuable. Yeah. Because what I think we're really talking about is focus. 
Yeah. How do we know what to focus on and when? Because we get we, we only have so much attention that we can give. And we want to give that to the right things at the right time in the right way. And you probably can only focus on one, two, or three things at a time. And so there's a the, the difference between abs and a dad bod is not work-life balance. <laughs> it's focus. It is. Um, yeah. And I think you got to pick where you focus. Yep. And I think that's allowed to change over different seasons of your life. Absolutely. But I'd much rather see people think about it through that lens. Um, and then when you insert the balance, what you find they're actually talking about is, I think what we're saying is we need to have five or six things that we're focused unequally on, mm-hmm. but don't forget them because yep. they matter. Yeah. Well, one of the last things I wanted to talk to you about is, and I think it's totally in alignment with goals and work-life balance, even though we would agree that I don't necessarily love that metaphor either, but you were, you know, one of the things in a lot of these coaching and self-help groups is a vision board. Yeah. And I saw a video of yours recently where you said, well, what about a nightmare board? (laughs) And at first I laughed, I laughed really hard and, Mm -hmm. but then I listened and it, not only did it make total sense to me, but that's my experience. Like I will not do anything for a vision board. Mm -hmm. And for me, I've naturally, and this may sound crazy to people, but I literally have thought about losing my wife, losing my kids, laying off all my people because I can't afford to keep them Uh losing my friends because I make stupid decisions and they don't want to spend time with Uh me anymore. And for me is way more motivating looking at worst case scenarios and all the things that matter the most to me than putting a, a Lamborghini on a board and a trip to Maui. Right. (laughs) The other thing about that idea. So you're absolutely right. Being able to see a worst case scenario and, and not pre-live it. That's what anxiety is, pre-living those kinds of failures. Don't do that. But you can look at them. And then that helps us understand that when we see a best case scenario, those two things probably have equal probabilities, Mm -hmm. right? So that's interesting. And that we actually need to put our vision somewhere in here. Um, That's one of the benefits of it. Another benefit of doing a nightmare board or thinking through fears is to recognize that some of our fears are not going to happen. So many of the things that people are terrified of have some of the, it's like, it's like, it's the last thing I would worry that's happening in your life, mm-hmm. but it's the only thing you're trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. And so it takes all of your energy. And when you can see that, you can actually start to set that one down. Um, there's also some of our biggest fears get built. They're huge in our mind. Yeah, They get overwhelming. Yep. And yet if we can write them down and look at them, you can see, well, gosh, I could mitigate that in these three ways, mm-hmm. risk, de-risk this situation significantly. And now I might be willing to actually take a bigger step forward because this fear has now been seen, brought in, looked at, and planned for. And you can, you can really do a lot of work by learning how to, how to dance with your fear. That's super powerful. Lots of people are trying to become fearless. Mm-hmm. We have the brands, Taylor Swift has a song, and it's kind of, it's cute, it's fine. But the only person that's actually fearless is a drunk at a frat party. <laughs> and that is not somebody you want to want to follow or or emulate. Yeah. What Will, Will Ferrell comes to mind. <laughs> yeah. What they have is temporary invincibility. Yeah. Fearlessness is not helpful. No. What we want to do is learn to dance with our fear because it's there to teach us something. It's for something. And I think people who get good at that kind of a process actually learn how to lead that dance. That's what we mean by overcoming the fear of failure, not never fearing failure again. It's actually going, oh, yeah, that fear is for something Mm -hmm. in the same way that I think goal setting is for something. Mm -hmm. But a Lamborghini and any external motivated 
goal that you would establish that doesn't motivate you, it's probably more like an escape fantasy. It is. And yeah. you just won't, you won't suffer for that. So. Okay. So want me to wrap it up? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, huh? Oh, that's, there's, mm-hmm. there's probably a few in there. I'm hoping. Right. Yeah, this has been good, man. All right. Well, Kirk, dude, thank you so much for being here with me. I, I feel like there, there was, I learned a lot and I'm looking forward to connecting with you more and uh, I'm sure that we'll get some great comments out of this. So, hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to like, subscribe and leave us a comment or ask a question. It will really help us out a lot. Hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Have a great day.